Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, reanimator. Oh, that's a movie. Yeah, but I'm not the movie. You're not the movie. You're, I'm just so... You're like the guy in the movie. I can reanimate, you know, if... It, you know, like when Dave's dog died a few weeks ago. Oh my God, <laughs> Jesus, Jason! I could have reacted. Terrible start to this episode. <laughs> well, it's current, you know, and he's here, so that is not. Hey, that an dog excuse. had a good life, man. I'm sure it did. So, like, let's let let's just like let's not that. talk about it anymore at all. You want me to reanimate your dog, Dave? I love you, Sadie. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so. In our third season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1989. And in this episode, we are looking at a notable filmmaking debut. And uh, in our previous two seasons, we stuck with the Viewisk universe, but uh, that was not around in 1989. So instead, we're talking about Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. And I would say Cameron Crowe, probably a big influence on Kevin Smith. So. That is probably true. So there is some connective tissue yeah, there. Yeah, we just definitely have to do Kevin Smith-related <laughs> films yeah. for this. Uh, it's going to be very specific from now on. First-time filmmakers <laughs> who somehow relate to Kevin Smith. Yes. So Say Anything was Cameron Crowe's first film as a director, uh, although he started out as a writer, uh, both as a journalist and as a screenwriter, and uh, wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and uh, The Wildlife, I think, is another, the other screenplay that he had written before this, which is not a film that I've seen. But Say Anything was his directorial debut. It was, I, I guess you could say it was a modest hit. Uh, it grossed $21.5 million on a budget of $16 million. So depending on, you know, marketing and stuff, it might have just broken even. I think it was probably, you know, one of those uh, hits in that it had critical acclaim and it lived on beyond just that, you know, release. And uh, it, it was a big hit on on the home movie circuit <laughs> on the yeah. uh, on the VHS you go to the video store. Hey, what's new this week? Uh, oh, no, I don't want to watch Beverly Hills Cop 3. How about this then? Say anything. That's a that's a great impression <laughs> of a video store clerk there. I used to work at one. As, I hope you didn't you talk know. that way. I say that's what, no matter what it was. Yeah. How about, you know what I used to do when I was uh, a teenager, Josh? Uh, I don't, but uh, you're going to tell me. When I, was, when I went back to New Jersey for the summer with my friend Jay Gruber, Every day we'd walk into the center and say, you could do this back in these days. It was an innocent time. There was the strip mall in the middle of town, right? And we would go to the video store in the morning and we would argue for about an hour over what movie we would want. We'd finally agree on one, but we'd say, let's not get it just yet. Let's have lunch first. So whatever movie we would want, we would put behind Bushwhacked, the, uh, the, the Daniel, Daniel Stern, Stern movie. Film. Yeah. Because we assumed no one would ever pick it. Right. And we were right. Then we'd yeah. go eat lunch, come back, go to Bushwhacked and be like, yeah, we will watch. Say what, anything. Say anything or any other movie that wasn't Bushwhacked. I don't think I ever used Bushwhacked, but I used that strategy. You did? Yes, See? absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's actually a nice story. I think I was expecting <laughs> something. It's a very sweet little anecdote there. Yeah, I got I got that. There's more, more than one side to this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, did, did Jason, did you rent say anything back like as a, a teenager? No, the first time I saw it was probably after college when, you know, I like Cameron Crowe and I'd seen other movies of his. 
And, you know, you just go back through the catalog and I hadn't watched it since that viewing. So yeah. It's probably been a decade or at least I would guess. Since right. I saw it. Yeah. I probably about the same. I can't remember exactly when, but I don't think like as a teenager, um, I, I watched it, but maybe uh, in college or, or post-college I too liked Cameron Crowe's later films. I love Almost Famous, that's one of my favorite movies, like, of all time, so. I'm yeah, sure I'd also throw back. Jerry Maguire in there. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of that. I haven't seen that in a really long time. But I'm sure I had seen those two and was interested in, in his earlier And films. we knew, I mean, look, we obviously are film fans, aficionados, if you will. Oh, are we? Uh, uh, <laughs> fanatics, perhaps, yeah. connoisseurs. Oh, good, you're a thesaurus today. <laughs> yeah, film guys who like movies sure uh yeah so i mean we both knew about say anything yeah from the jump and singles obviously became somewhat iconic of that gen x yeah growing up period so uh you know it, it just took us a while to get around to watching it it seems like right although it was still again for me as well quite a while ago revisiting it this time i didn't remember a ton about it yeah me um, neither really but like you were saying it was critically acclaimed um it got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. Roger Ebert said, what's unique to this movie is how sure-footed it is in presenting the ordinary everyday lives and rituals of kids in their late teens. The parties, the conversations, and the value systems seem real and carefully observed. These teenagers are not simply empty-headed animal house retreads. The movie pays them the compliment of seeing them as actual people with opinions and futures. Say Anything is one of those rare movies that has something to teach us about life. It doesn't have a, quote, lesson or a, quote, message, but it observes its moral choices so carefully that it helps us see our own. That such intelligence could be contained in a movie that is simultaneously so funny and so entertaining is some kind of a miracle. He loved it. I have another Ebert quote. Oh, do you? Yeah, because... In 2002, in his book, The Great Movie List. Yeah, he threw it in there as well. Yeah, and uh, he wrote, Say anything exists entirely in a real world is not a fantasy or a pious parable, has characters who we sort of recognize, and is directed with care for the human feelings involved. And uh, I think he's right, is that you, you could come into this movie thinking, oh, it's a teen romantic comedy and from the 80s, and you know what to expect out of something like that, and, and there's, there's a lot more reality to it yeah it's very grounded and even you know uh, obviously the iconic uh in your eyes boombox scene which i think we'll get to as sure. pluses and minuses yes. and has been uh spoofed a billion times in pop culture i think um the lloyd character is more grounded than we would assume based on all of those spoofs of this right film. yeah someone who does who does something like that uh, and Cameron Crowe, I, I, this was, I think, from like IMDb trivia, so you never know if that's 100% true, but supposedly Cameron Crowe credited Roger Ebert's enthusiasm in part for uh, the box office uh, relative success of this movie. If it's on the internet, it's true, baby. That's, that's a very good point. <laughs> but actually, I think the reviews were, I mean, now this is a very, very positively regarded movie, but I think the reviews were maybe a little more mixed. At the time, Ebert loved it, and Siskel loved it too. I mean, watching them talk about it on the show, they both really liked it. Uh, Siskel compared it to the Accidental Tourist, which I've never seen. Me neither. Did you go back and watch uh, the Siskel and Ebert segment? On I this? did. Yeah, I love that man. I usually do. I try to if I can. You're you're a real asset to this podcast. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, some of the other reviews were a little more uh, a little more mixed and. 
maybe more considered it more of a typical teen comedy. So uh, Karen James in the New York Times said, can a nice guy named Lloyd who has no plans for college win the love of the beautiful ice princess who happens to be a class valedictorian? Does anyone over the age of 18 care? Say Anything has a prepackaged feel with all the fuzzy-hearted warmth of a John Hughes film. But it was written and directed by Cameron Crowe, who wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a tough-minded, sardonic film that makes Molly Ringwald's high school girls seem as realistic as Dorothy and Oz. The predictable surface of Say Anything is constantly being cracked by characters who think and talk like real people, and by John Cusack's terrifically natural, appealing Lloyd. Here is a film seriously at war with itself. Yeah, I mean, at first I was like, oh, this is... And then it was like, oh, this is, you know, it's like <laughs> quite a ride you went on there. Yeah, who, who wrote so, that again? It's Karen, Karen James in the New York Times. She's like one of these pickup artists who <laughs> insults the person. She's to negging them, this movie. Yeah, <laughs> to get them to, to like it or something like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's quite as, as schizophrenic as she describes it, but I think that's one of its charms that, again, you come into it and you think, oh, this is the teen movie about the dork who gets the hottie or whatever and they're both much more multi-layered than that yeah uh except they're both somewhat eccentric in their own ways i'd say yeah so lastly uh kirk honeycutt in the uh, hollywood reporter said say anything is an easy film to like ex-rock journalist cameron crowe known for two screenplays about teenagers caught up in the fast lane has written and directed for the first time a surprisingly gentle comedy about teens that concerns itself with values and love. The characters are all likable, too. No real villains here, only people who make mistakes in the name of love. All this amiability blunts the edge Crow obviously wants to give his comedy, but the film has enough funny, offbeat moments to qualify as a sleeper. And Ebert talked about that idea of values, too, I think, the idea that this movie has kind of a, a moral center to it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even... Uh... Diane Court's uh, father, who is the on the legal side, <laughs> a villain, I guess yeah, you would say, yeah. committing crimes. I, he does it out of love, and I guess there's justification for what he's doing. So, right. I mean, and I think go. it's it's even where the characters maybe he he has a slightly immoral, even though he justifies it in his own way. But the movie has a sense of values. The movie has a perspective that's respectful of of characters and. Uh, I saw something, I can't remember now, maybe it was on Letterboxd, but uh, about the idea of Lloyd as this portrayal of sort of the sensitive male or the guy who is happy to be sort of secondary in a relationship or whatever, but that also in no way it it doesn't emasculate him or criticize him for that, that it's sort of a uh, an antidote to toxic masculinity. Yeah, I didn't get that from all it right. at all. I mean, not that I got any toxic masculinity from it, I thought... I thought their relationship was on equal footing in that, you know, he got her uh, when other gents couldn't, as even the dad said, you know, uh, he's not your typical frat boy type or whatever. Or maybe she said that Diane in the movie. Yeah. But uh, but I thought like they laid out the stakes at the beginning, like, hey, I'm leaving at the end of the summer to go on this, you know, scholarship trip. And he's like, OK, let's just spend all the time that we can together. So. You already know what the deal is, you know, so I don't really think he took a back seat to anything. It was just the ticking clock of the whole the whole uh, film. Right. And I think it's not that he takes a back seat in their relationship, but the idea that she's the kind of accomplished one who has ambitions and he 
is happy to just be her support system. Oh, you don't think we've ever seen that in films before? I'm not saying we never have. Uh, I'm just saying that in this particular instance, someone pointed out that that's not a typical romantic comedy setup and that the movie validates that without uh, I'm judging. not a smart man, but I know what love is. <laughs> Are you comparing this movie to Forrest Gump? No, I'm just saying that we've seen plenty of dudes who, you know, like... Hey, you're too good for me, but I'll fight for you. You know, we've seen that a hundred times. I don't, I don't agree with this anonymous letter. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember who it was, and maybe I'm, but I, I felt like they had some validity to that. But um, that's kind of getting us off track here. Uh, I don't. The other background here is uh, this movie also got a B plus from CinemaScore, the audience polling service. So audiences generally positive about it. And and like you said, even if it wasn't a massive success initially. At the box office, it's certainly become extremely beloved and popular over time. And uh, are there any other background things you, you wanted know, to mention? You know, it made all those EW lists of greatest romance or films or greatest uh, uh, high school movies, which, I've, of course, Fast Times is too. That uh, We should watch that other Cameron Crowe movie. I don't even know that movie. Oh, yeah, but... I don't either. And I'm not sure if it's got a, a positive reputation, but those are both, uh, those are the two that he wrote before he started directing. Yeah, other than that, no, I think you you hit it. Uh, we see a lot of actors that we've come, we'll come to know in the future in small parts. So that's another fun bit of it. Right, yeah, some debuts here and uh, people who are uncredited. So, all right, well, then let's uh, take a little break and we'll come back and talk about our general thoughts on Say Anything. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about a notable filmmaking debut. In this case, it is Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. And I think as we were both saying, we had seen this movie each a while ago. And so revisiting it this time, did you like it more or less? What were your thoughts? I think I liked it about the same. Uh, I think obviously the dialogue and the acting is the strength here. Um, I would say midway through act two, it kind of like, I don't want to say it unravels, but it goes in all these different directions. And you're like, oh, I don't know. But he does tie up all the loose ends uh, when it's all said and done. So, yeah, it's a fun movie. It's not as uh, tight or polished as his later work. But this is his first effort in that uh, area. So right. I think I liked it. Um, and obviously, iconic John, John Cusack, uh, one of the great teen angst filled lovers of all of cinema history. Yeah. I think I maybe liked it a little more just because as we were talking about before, I, I loved almost famous so much. And I came to this movie thinking, Oh, Cameron Crowe is a genius. And I, I should see all the other brilliant things that he's done. And this movie has a very strong reputation. And I think I had very high expectations that I was a little, a little disappointed at that time. Like you were saying, it's maybe not as tight as his, I don't want to say his later work because his more recent work is uh, kind Whoa. of a mess. Yeah. Um, but as his most well-known films, but, but this time I think maybe my expectations were a little more moderate. And so I, I quite enjoyed it, especially probably the first half. Um, and the performances are, are really good. John Cusack, again, is like you said, the iconic sort of dorky, teen in love 
But I thought Ioni Sky was really good too. And this movie, one thing it does well is that it doesn't make her into just this sort of symbol of what Lloyd wants to attain. She's a fully realized character too. I agree with that. She's she's a, a blossoming young woman who's going to be a big part of the future. Probably a state senator. A state senator? I think she could have been a senator, Diane Court. That's even a good Not name. a regular senator, just a state senator? Well, I mean... You don't want to give her... You don't want to give her... Put too much no, pressure on No, a U.S. senator. Yeah, okay. she could start in the state assembly and move her way. All right. Court for Senate sounds good. Sure, sure. You know, and uh, hopefully she won't <laughs> fall into some financial discord like her father and, right. and go downhill. Uh, just, you know, everyone has an Achilles heel for the courts. Maybe it's a uh, financial scamming. Nowadays, nowadays they just dig back into her parents' business. That's so true. Yeah. I don't know if she could, I don't know if she could get elected because her father went to jail for embezzlement. Oh my. Um, well then I guess she will have a successful career as, um, a lawyer. She could be a lawyer, I guess. Sure. We can give her that. What it, Dave, did you watch the movie? I did watch this movie. This was, I was very excited ever. when I saw on Letterboxd that Dave had watched ever. this movie. Yeah. All right. Um, I, 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 was, I was very proud of myself, guys. Uh, no, I did watch it. And I'm, as I was watching, I wasn't sure if I've ever actually seen it before. You know, I, I think I must have. You know, it's just one of those classics everybody kind of saw back when we were, you know, much younger. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was great. I thought everybody in it was great. And I, I just love how it really like captured what, you know, young people basically are, you know, I, yeah. I, I joked in my letterbox review that, uh, it, you know, I, what came first, this or what young people actually, you know, are you know, in real life. See what impact you can have on this show when you actually watch the movies, Dave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, he obviously... Look, from Fast Times on, I mean, we he's always been good at kind of writing teenagers and uh, telling those stories. Yeah, especially in these early films, I think when he's closer to that stage of life, uh, he had a very good understanding of uh, of how people behave and uh, the way they talk, even though I mean, the dialogue in this movie is somewhat stylized in a positive way. We remember all those lines because they're so sharply written. Yeah, but are, there's I, a lot of good quotable lines of yes this film. yes there are but i do think yeah i agree that 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 he has a good understanding this feels real i mean even if it's heightened at times it feels emotionally real and as roger eber pointed out it doesn't feel like the kind of goofy cartoonish portrayals that we get in a lot of teen movies including honestly in some john hughes movies i mean who is like the gold standard for this stuff mm -hmm. but a lot of his stuff is really exaggerated and silly and i don't think there's anything in this movie that you could call silly no though. but i also think as teenagers like your scope of the world is so myopic that that you become exaggerated and silly over young love and uh financial crimes <laughs> no not <laughs> no but i mean you know whatever your immediate situation is that's the whole situation of the world right so this is it this is the end all be all for for them so i could see the heightened dialogue as I'm sure I probably was a, uh, a teenage fool myself at one point in time. Right. Well, not that they, I mean, there can be fools. And obviously, I mean, we have Lily Taylor's character who is so obsessed with her doofus ex-boyfriend that she writes 65 songs about how he right, cheats on her songs. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously that's a, that's, that's what you're talking about. That kind of 
teenage obsession where you feel like your little breakup is like the only thing that matters in the entire yeah. world. That scene was a little weird with Lily Taylor and her boyfriend at the party. The dialogue there was a little weird. I thought that was a little clunky. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's maybe meant to be. It's an awkward interaction. And he is obviously inarticulate. And I think you can see in that scene where we've seen her a few times now as she plays Lloyd's, one of his best friends. And so we have a respect for her and she's obsessed with this guy. And he finally shows up and says some stuff. And he's completely inarticulate and stupid and obviously worthless. Yeah, he's no good. And uh, so we get to see her reject him after having been obsessed with him for so long. And that's kind of a nice little moment. Yeah, but it wasn't like a rejection of like, oh, this is now I'm coming from this point of view of strength. It was more of like, I really do see what an asshole you are. And it continues to hurt me. So I just have to go now. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, she's a secondary character, so she doesn't have the the arc that the other characters do. Um but I think within her little side storyline, that's a somewhat satisfying moment. I mean, you know, we all know the the probably the most famous line is I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. Yes. Right. But there's mm. so many good lines in there of, you know, when uh, the drunk Jeremy Piven comes barging up for his keys like yeah. you must chill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and then uh, I, I my favorite, I think, is call me call me tomorrow and. Uh, and then Diane Cord says, today's tomorrow. So Lloyd says, then call me today. You yeah, know, that's a, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really, I mean, in the, the romantic, you can tell that they're falling in love. I think that's one of the toughest things to do in a romantic movie is to get the sense of people actually falling in love. And I think Cameron Crowe does a great job with it. And, and John Cusack and Ioni Skye have genuine chemistry that you can believe these two people coming together, even though they're from very different backgrounds. Yeah, I would say a flaw, though, is they um, almost like premeditate the next beat of the film in dialogue. So it's like, you know, like, oh, we're, we went on a date and it was great, but we should just be friends. And then they'll like have a conversation. We'll just be friends. And then they like sleep together. Right. And then like the next scene will be uh, Diane Court's dad saying like, you should break up with him. So the next scene after that is like, hey, I have to break up with you. You know, it becomes a little, you know, stuck in its way uh, at points. Yeah, I guess. Although I liked, I, I had sort of expected that the breakup would be more like you were saying, where the dad actually says, like, you must break up with Lloyd. And she says, okay, I will. But he, like, kind of hints at, or more than hints at it, he basically says, Lloyd is not right for you. And, but then he sort of backs off and says, you should do what you, what you think is best. And then she breaks up with him anyway. And it shows you how influenced she is by the dad that even though he's said like, you do what you want, what you want or what you think is best, she takes his opinion so seriously that she breaks up with Lloyd anyway, even though he isn't like giving her some sort of ultimatum. Right. I had read that the kind of impetus of the idea was James L. Brooks had seen a story of, you know, a guy going to jail and he's like, well, that would be interesting if we could do a romantic comedy of, uh, you know, some young person and what their relationship is with a parent who goes to jail. Um, what did you think of that John Mahoney character? Because he was so good and loving in so many ways. And then he committed, uh, you know, fraud or whatever it was. So I thought that was interesting that they really kind of shaded him as more than just a honey 
right. you're late, you know. Yeah, I read uh, again somewhere, and I can't remember where, some commentary saying that this movie, it's like a love triangle between Lloyd and Diane and Diane's dad. Because there's no rival for Lloyd's romantic affection. But she is so attached to her dad that, again, she takes his opinion so seriously that she does what he just kind of even implies that she should be doing. So I like that about him as a character and that he isn't just a villain either. I mean, he does something that's obviously bad and wrong and he justifies it by saying he does it because he wants to to help Diane and give her everything. And you can sympathize with that desire to do that and yet still understand that what he did is wrong and sympathize with her anger at him. Right. And I don't think he, you know, he doesn't come around at the end in the sense that in that, that last scene in the, the prison, he's not like, Oh Lloyd, I was wrong about you. He still kind of doesn't really like Lloyd, yeah. but he understands that Diane and Lloyd are together and Diane doesn't entirely forgive him, but she also still loves him. And I thought that was a good mix of emotions. I think that's all fair. And he did, in the end, take the heat for what he did. He didn't try to fight it, and he just said, like, let's just get this over with. So Right. Um, yeah, interesting. Did you read who the other potential fathers were? I might have, but I don't remember. I know you always like the alternate I do casting. like that to see what the movie. Dick Van Dyke. Oh, I think I had Maybe read about that. Maybe too likable. Right? Yeah, although I think, I think Dick Van Dyke could do a bit of darkness. I think he's done it maybe occasionally. Yeah, on... Oh, diagnosis yeah murder. diagnosis murder no i can't think of what now but i think he has um and then the other one was richard dreyfus who i think would have been too young at that time but yeah maybe so i mean I, i'm thinking of current richard dreyfus who obviously is not too young but i think he could have done yeah that. i think the the word was that he said he sent cameron crow back a note that said great script i want to play lloyd <laughs> well yeah maybe he was like in his 30s or something yeah. at that time yeah yeah he definitely should not have played lloyd yeah, well, hey, I got some more uh, alternate castings oh, for you. Oh, do you? you okay, you sure. Yeah, so the two I had read for the Diane role were Jennifer Connelly, who we all love. Yeah, so, she could have been good. Yeah, and uh, Elizabeth Shue, also good. Yeah. Um, the choices for uh, Lloyd, not as good. Not <laughs> as good here. We'll start with, uh, the, the. we'll start at the top and maybe work our way down there. So Robert Downey Jr., they said, turn the role down. Yeah, he could. I mean, he did a lot of similar stuff like this in the 80s. Right. Christian yeah. Slater, who also did that. Right. Yeah. It becomes a different movie with him, right. but still good. Uh, Peter Berg becomes a very macho. Yeah, you know? yeah. The kickboxing aspect of Lloyd, he probably would have right, been right yeah. on. Uh, and then um, Lauren Dean and Todd Field, who were like bit players in the, the actual movie. Okay, I but don't know. my favorite, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> I mean... That would have been bad, but at the same time, you can see why someone wanted to cast Kirk in Cameron 80s. in 1989. Say anything that Jesus wants you to yeah. say. I think the Jesus <laughs> stuff was still, that was that hadn't happened yet. Yeah. That was just a seed. Yeah. Mike Seaver. Right. Say I mean, Kirk Cameron had, what was it, Like Father, Like Son with Dudley Moore? He That was probably in the same year. Yeah, he, did he, they do a body switch in that one? Yeah, yeah, it was a body switch movie. So he was definitely being primed to become a movie star around this time. Yeah, and then he became Kirk Cameron. Yeah, and so I think things worked out better for this movie without him. But you mentioned the kickboxing, and that was the one of the funny things and one of the things that I hadn't remembered because we think of Lloyd as this sort of quintessential dork. I did not think of him that way. You thought of him that way. I mean, I feel like in pop culture, that's how he is portrayed. And that's what, the, like, even the reviews at the time described this as, like, the movie about the dork who gets the hot girl. I just didn't see it. I mean, dude, he's always wearing a Clash t-shirt. And, I mean, I personally love the Clash, but... 
even if you don't, you're not going to be like, hey, why are those dorks wearing that uh, seminal punk band? Yeah, I never thought of know? him as a dork either. He's well, kickboxing, uh, I, you know, he's self-sufficient in his own way. Kickboxing is a little bit of a weird character masculine. trait. But but I always thought of him as more of just like, a, just kind of like a... Proto-hipster? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Someone who's sitting in his room crying to the cure, you know? Right, yeah. but I mean, yeah. I feel like, all okay, so maybe not a dork, but a hipster or someone who cries to the cure, you mm. don't think of that as someone who is like really into kickboxing. Right. That, that's, that's my point. True, mm. That the, the, I, the idea of him as an athlete and not just like a guy who does it for fun, but he wants to be like a professional kickboxer. He loves Don the Dragon Wilson, yeah. who has a cameo in this that movie. That is exciting. <laughs> yeah. The other thing he wants to do professionally is love Diane Corbin. Right. And that goes back to what I was saying before. The idea that like, okay, maybe he wants to be a kickboxer, but I think even Lloyd understands that being a kickboxer is probably a not realistic ambition. And what he really wants to do with his life is that he's happy to just support Diane in what she does with her life. Right. But he was also teaching kickboxing at the local kickboxing academy right and that's not to say he's going to be a a house husband but just that she has large ambitions and he has small ambitions and he's okay with that that's true yeah she's going to be president of the pta or president of the united states (laughs) and uh and he'll be uh, assistant coach of the little league team right yes he will definitely be assistant coach of the little league team now i feel like if we made a say anything 30 years later well maybe 30 years later is too later but uh you know, 10, 15 years later, that's where he would be. Yeah, I guess you could make that movie, but... Well, not now. Yeah, to, now it would be a little too late. Yeah, but, I know. Thank you. We don't want to see John Cusack uh, really do anything at this point. He, he's kind of fallen off these last few years. He has, indeed, and we can talk about that uh, a little later. I feel like the other thing, we can't not uh, talk about music if we talk about a Cameron Crowe movie. Absolutely. Yeah, music's great in, in this uh I, uh, I let, I mean, you know, everyone always, you know, in your eyes is the big song from the iconic scene, which if you watch that scene, not that, uh, believable that scene. Yeah. Oh, it's not that. I mean, I thought it was, do you mean it was unbelievable? You didn't feel like the characters would do that? No, I, I did because of what we saw in the car where, you know, after they have sex, uh they she's just like let's just listen to this song it's great right but the way it's shot in two different states at two different times he's he's clearly in a park you know which is where his his shots were where his i mean there could be a park across the street from her house or we've something. seen her house though yeah. she lives on a block it right. doesn't look like he's on a block in front yeah. of the house at all i guess i mean that didn't really bother me i guess my feeling seeing that this time was that it's so iconic and yet it didn't feel like the turning point of the movie or anything. In fact, I think if you had known that iconic scene, you would assume that immediately after that scene, she like rushes out to him and they get back together. But that doesn't happen. I mean, in fact, it doesn't get them back together at all. And it takes a while for them to actually get back together. Probably if, they had played the other Peter Gabriel classic Salisbury Hill, which is in yeah, a, every movie, 8,000 movies, you know? Yeah. And every parody movie trailer. Yeah, I no. love that song, but yeah. man, they really ground that one out of movies. They did. Well, I mean, and in your eyes too, which is a nice song because this, that scene is so iconic and it gets parodied so much. I feel like that has sort of lost its impact as well. Yeah. I had read that, you know, it was, Originally supposed to be Billy Idol's to be a lover or Fishbone's question of life or turn the other way. And I don't know. I don't think it would have had the impact without uh, in your eyes because uh, that that was just the song of that moment that fit so perfectly. Yeah, yeah, that was absolutely the right choice. And 
the the perfect like you said it 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 has that right i think it has that right balance where it's like a romantic ballad but it's not super cheesy it feels like something the characters would listen to and something that he would choose to play for her at that moment so i i think that moment is good but i don't know that it's like it makes the movie i'll tell you i had one other favorite musical moment yeah at the beginning of the movie at the graduation where the dude singing Whitney Houston's greatest love yeah. of all <laughs> in a totally off just, key, yeah, acapella way for no reason at all. That yeah. was great, and then the audience goes crazy for that. And then Diane gets in, give, gets up and gives her big speech, and and nobody likes yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I was particularly psyched to hear uh, Depeche Mode strip during the party scene, which. Uh, I wish I was of age to go to parties when stripped is the kind of song that would play at a party. I can understand. Well, yeah. I don't know, see, if if that would have even been the case because Cameron Crowe, of course, is a music... He invented that. Yeah, like, right. I mean, <laughs> and he puts that in because he loves that song, not necessarily because yeah. teens were listening to it. Yeah. I thought it, the music choices, too, show the way that this movie is sort of like on the cusp of the 90s and that we have like Soundgarden and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone, mm-hmm. uh, who we think of all as like big 90s bands. And then Peter Gabriel and Depeche Mode and stuff like that. That's very 80s. So it's really right on that cusp. That party sequence that Dave's talking about is very, maybe the strongest sequence of the movie other than the falling in love montage and, you know, which leads to the sex and all that fun stuff. Uh, But that sequence where you get to know all these like minor characters like Piven and Eric Stoltz and um, you see Lily Taylor and the, and the Joe character, the boyfriend I thought that whole sequence was really good showing all the crazy crap that happens at uh, high school parties. Yeah. I mean that the, the party is sort of a cliche of the teen movie, but I, I, I agree. I think that's done well. And that's, that's a sequence where it has some of the funniest stuff in the movie. Like you were saying that Jeremy Piven, you must chill moment, but it also has a lot of building of their relationship where you see them in separate places in the party. And they're always kind of looking at each other and checking in with each other. And, and you can see that connection growing. So, yeah, I agree. I like that that sequence a lot. And I, I randomly I watched there's a, one of the deleted scenes on the DVD is a bit from the party where Lloyd is giving advice to some random girl. And I, I mean, it was probably not a necessary. It was fine to cut the scene, but it, it gives you the sense again of him as this kind of stand up guy. She's saying, oh, I, I kind of like this guy and I kind of liked his friend and this is what happened. And he's like, don't date either of those guys. And he's just yeah. very confident in what he's telling her. He's- and he's clearly right. He said, there are too many guys out there. You find yourself a man. That is another, uh, another <laughs> yeah, good line. I'm riffing yeah. off of the, right. but, uh, but no, I do, you know, going back to the Lloyd character, that's a good example of, uh, of him being a stand-up guy and he doesn't get screwed over by like, Oh, she left me for the bad boy type thing. It's just timing, uh, doesn't work sometimes. Right. It's just life. And she has a lot going on. And again, because she's a fully realized character, we can see, how much is happening in her life and how that stresses her out and how it might lead her to break up with him. I will say, I think this is a great last scene in a movie. Yeah. With the, on the airplane. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with the, the sort of tension of what's going to happen and having that little ding at the end. Right. She's not a good flyer. We've already known that throughout that's been there and he's going with her to London. And, you know, we have those moments of, he says, you know, if there's a problem on the plane, it usually happens in the first five minutes. So once that pilot turns off the fasten seatbelt sign, you hear that ding, it's going to all be okay. And 
and it's just pause, 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 beat. What's going to happen? I thought it was going to end there. Right. I kind of did know? too. I couldn't remember. And is it very like uh, uh, before sunset or uh, before sunrise? That would have been right. Yeah. And then, you know, when are we going to hear that ding? And then eventually you hear it. And that's yeah. the last thing in the movie. And it's obviously, you know, a metaphor for how things are going to go for them. Um, one, one, some slight criticism I had while watching it this time is that Lloyd is great, but maybe Lloyd is too great that there are so many scenes of people around him, like his friends, uh, Lily Taylor's character and the other friend character. Was that Pamela Adlon? It was Pamela Adlon. She's not, she was sort of like a tertiary friend, but the, the other like main friend, I forget who that actress is, but they talk constantly about how great Lloyd is. You know, his sister tells him he's great. Like he's almost, he needed a, like maybe an extra flaw. I thought. Jealous, Josh, that you didn't get yourself a Lloyd? That I didn't get a Lloyd or <laughs> yeah. I didn't get a Diane? I mean, they're you both You don't great. have a Lloyd. No, no, I don't No, have a Lloyd. I, I, you know, all right, fair. That's yeah, fair. I mean, I don't, I don't know. He's, he's such a, like you were saying, he's this quintessential, like, romantic comedy hero or protagonist or whatever. And I thought maybe he could have a little more of a flaw. I mean, even things that you could think of as flaws, like his his lack of career ambition or whatever are shown to be endearing qualities. I think you him. could make that same argument for Jerry Maguire. He does that Superman thing uh, quite a bit, Cameron Crowe. Yeah, yeah. I, I Again, I haven't seen Jerry Maguire in a while, but I think you are, uh, I think you are correct about that. So uh, any other performances that we should note in this movie? Uh, well, we mentioned, oh, B.B. Newworth. She was fun in there. Yeah, her first. I like that scene because she's she's the school counselor i know i thought she was like a student or something no that's why it's funny about that scene is because she's the school counselor and so she's standing there giving lloyd all this advice about what he should do with his career and how he should go to college while in the meantime she's handing him her keys because she's about to go get drunk at the student's <laughs> high school party yeah, which i thought was funny. just a really funny detail yeah you couldn't do that today probably probably but... not but i thought it was done very well in sort of an understated way yeah i mean you know it's always fun to see philip baker hall even though this performance he just pretty much had exposition of your dad's a bad, bad right he's the bad. irs guy prosecuting uh yeah Diane's and, dad. and then the other one was uh uncredited das, dan castanaletta dan castanaletta dan castellanetta yeah. yeah from uh the simpsons i think his scene was cut though, yeah, wasn't it? i think you're probably right um but it's interesting because you know james l brooks produced it right and then they showed simpsons short a short film of The Simpsons at a lot of screenings before this place. Yeah, this was right around when The Simpsons was was starting. Um, yeah, Jeremy Piven, we mentioned, who is very Jeremy Piven. Man, he could, but he always knocks that role out of the park. You know? uh, yeah, I mean, back in, in this time he did. I think he kind of got a little too uh, wrapped Piveny? up in it. Yeah, he did get a little too Piveny. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Eric Stoltz is fun. He over-Pivened? That is a fair assessment yeah. of his, uh, his career. The party scene, yeah, Eric Stoltz is is fun in his little role as the host of the party. Yeah. Um, yeah, a, lo- a lot of fun, short appearances in this movie from people that we would end up seeing later. Uh, Joan Cusack playing her brother's uh, sister. sister. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if this was the only movie in which they had played brother and sister. No way. Yeah, they've done it a bunch. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Gross Point Blank, right? Was she in Gross Point Blank too? I feel like it. I don't know. There was a, I was just going through her filmography, and by like her third movie, it was they had played brother yeah, and sister. Yeah, so. Fidelity or something. Yeah, it's remember, happened but. a few times. But she's always welcome to see as well. Um, so out of uh, five uh, boom boxes, 
five Toshiba RT dash SX one boomboxes. Oh, that's so good that you good. looked up the model number of the boombox. That's the most important uh, thing. Three and a half. Yeah, I agree. Three and a half. But I think it's a very good, it's a very good movie. I mean, yeah. I haven't. Some people feel like this movie is like. I don't know, just super meaningful to them. And I didn't get that, but it's, it's really entertaining. Yeah. I bet like we always talk about your sister. I bet she feels like she loves this. I know yeah. I had saw again, uh, just going on letterbox. I don't think we've talked about it, but I saw her rating and she gave it like four and a half stars and she was a big fan. I can understand that. It's, yeah. it's one of the better romantic comedies that have been made. Yeah. And I think it's got a lot of genuine emotion that I can see people getting kind of swept up in. Uh, so we'll come back then and talk some more about the legacy of Say Anything. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about a notable filmmaking debut, which is Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. And this movie has a very strong legacy. I mean, we talked a lot about the iconic, certainly the boombox scene, which is people who've never seen this movie have never even heard of this movie, I think, know that scene. Probably, probably a bunch of little emo fans out there who love that band without even knowing where the name come, came yes, from. Yes, right? I'm glad we both noted down emo band say anything yeah. is an important part of the legacy here. Yeah. Uh, some other things there was supposed to be a TV series, uh, ba- like a uh, version of it, but they had never run it by Cameron Crowe. So he kind of kiboshed that you would mention the music, which I think was uh, a legacy point because soundtrack became so uh, integral to Cameron Crowe's movies. Yeah. I think, I mean, I remember singles, which was his next yeah. film. And I have seen singles, but I bought the soundtrack to singles probably five years or more before I ever bothered even seeing the movie because the soundtrack was such a huge deal. Yeah, I'd like to see it again because that's another Seattle-based movie, right? And those are the 20-somethings. So that that is a, a very logical next step from Say Anything. And uh, I, I haven't watched that since my initial viewing, whenever that was. Yeah, I haven't either. And I think when I saw that, I had a similar reaction to when I first saw Say Anything, which is that I had loved Almost Famous so much and I was ready to love another one of his films and I was a little let down. And that movie, Singles, doesn't have nearly the reputation of his other early films of Say Anything or Jerry Maguire or Almost Famous. Of those first four, that's probably the least well-regarded singles is a good movie. I'm not saying it's not a good movie, but I think in, in sort of the critical sense or in the pop culture sense, it's the one that, that gets left behind most, but, but I'd be, I'd be eager to see it again and, and hopefully be a little more into it. Yeah. I'd like to see that again too. One, one fun uh, note, since we're talking about Seattle, you know, there's, um, Cusack's driving on the highway, uh, multiple points in this movie. Yes. And at one point, I think it was after she broke up with him and he's like driving all night. And then he's in the rain, you know, making that call. That, that, that Where he gives that iconic line. Right. Yes. Yeah, the pen. Yeah. Uh, that that rain gets called back in uh, High Fidelity, you know, the, the make-out rain. Oh, yeah. I haven't stuff. seen High Fidelity in a long time either. Um, and then he drives by a movie theater, the Guild 45 Theater, and uh, Tape Heads is playing in the background. And Tape Heads stars. John Cusack. John Cusack. Have you so, seen Tape Heads? I have seen Tape Heads. Oh, yeah? Is that it's good? A, that would be a good one for a cult classic of the 80s. I think it was 88. It's him and Tim Robbins, and they become like music video directors. So it's like not something you could really replicate today. Yeah. Um, yes, it's good, but it's better because it's so time stamped. Right, right. Dave, as a film composer, what do you think of Cameron Crowe's use of music in his films? 
Yeah, I mean, he's one of the great when it comes to making that, you know, soundtrack album thing, you know, it's absolutely, it, you could see it here. And then, of course, singles and everything since then. I mean, yeah. Jerry Maguire was a huge soundtrack and Almost Famous was a huge soundtrack. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what was on the Jerry Maguire soundtrack. Secret Garden, Springsteen song. Oh, well, yes, it was right. Springsteen then. <laughs> and then the Free Fallen, uh, the scene with Free Fallen was an iconic scene. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen Jerry Maguire in so long, but and I've then, seen Almost Famous like a bunch of times. And then Cuba Gooding sings What's Been What's Going On at His Wedding, for, <laughs> which is a very weird choice. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot, man. You just... Uh, All right, no, I just... I'm not saying... I'm not disagreeing. I was just saying I didn't remember because I haven't seen it in a I long mean, time. with... Uh, with Secret Garden, it was such a hit. I remember they did like those radio remixes where they'd play the song with dialogue. Oh, from the those movie. are terrible. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Almost Famous, obviously, which is about a music journalist. So, of course, the music is going to be essential to it. But uh, that to me is his best movie. And that is honestly one of my favorite movies of all time. Almost Famous is awesome. I would not argue. I mean, honestly, of the if you picked any of those first four uh, singles, no, Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, those would be the two. I'd yeah, say. I mean, I I just I love Almost Famous, but then of course there are the movies he made after Almost Famous, which are not so good. Uh, yeah, Vanilla Sky didn't like. Yeah, Elizabeth Town. I didn't is see that a one notorious that failure. Yeah, uh, and then and I I kind of have a soft spot for We Bought a Zoo. I agree. That movie was fun. That yeah. movie's not bad at but all. But it's not nothing. It's nothing even remotely on the level of the the early films. D- does Vanilla Sky have a cult following? I well, don't think it even does. Really, it seems like maybe I always the hear original people say does. they love it. Yeah, though. the original probably does. Open your eyes, the uh, Alejandro Amenabar film, right. but. Um, no, I think Vanilla Sky is kind of is mostly forgotten and Elizabeth Town is just notorious for being a failure and also for being the way that the term manic pixie dream girl was first coined. <laughs> right. That in was a, in Elizabeth an article Town? about it. Well, it was not in the movie, it was in an article about the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I always thought that was a Garden State thing. No, it was Elizabeth Town. Oh. Although I'm sure it does apply to Garden State too, but yeah. Elizabeth Town was the the first use of it. But when, I don't even I mean, what got panned more, that or Aloha? Which I did not see. Right, Aloha probably did too, and Aloha is is quite bad. And I think both in Elizabethtown and Aloha both were movies that were also like rewritten and reshot, and were where he had a lot of trouble. And you can see his storytelling instincts seem so good in those early movies, and that he just kind of lost that. Did he just get old and was not able to write about older people? I don't know. And yeah, I mean, because you would think that the the thing about getting old would be as if he was still trying to write about teenagers and was kind of out of touch, but he doesn't. He does start writing about older people i just i I don't know maybe i wouldn't want to see a movie of his about teenagers now because i think that would be even worse i mean i i i would give him the benefit of the doubt on anything yeah but i mean as bad as those movies have been received the pearl jam documentary uh the leon russell and elton john documentary those were both quite acclaimed yeah and i've seen the pearl jam documentary because i'm a big pearl jam fan and it was fine but it wasn't anything like a notable filmmaking achievement. I no. mean, he interviewed the dudes in Pearl Jam and they talked about the band. And I, if you like Pearl Jam, it's worth seeing. And if not, there's no reason to see I it. I guess there's a Tom Petty one. I had never seen that one. And I don't remember this show, Roadies. Do you, Josh? I do. I, I watched a few episodes of it because I reviewed it when it premiered. And it was also just, I mean, it seems like exactly the kind of thing that would be perfect for yeah. him. And it's just so 
tone deaf in the way it's the relationships are written and even the world of I think what what I what's maybe the worst sign of someone who can't who kind of lost it is when they're writing about something that they know a lot about like a world that they're very very familiar with and yet it feels completely phony that is a real bummer yeah and that was to me the way that show fires yeah yeah well that's a bummer man because yeah, his his best is some of the best out there, right? So It is. And I I would give him the benefit of the doubt like you were saying. I mean, I assume although Aloha really failed pretty hard and Rodies was canceled after one season, I assume he'll get the chance to make something else. Yeah. And I'll he check hasn't it done out. Anything since Rodies. Yeah, it's been a few years. And I mean, I think he still uh does some writing for Rolling Stone and he actually he produced and it was interesting the the recent David Crosby documentary um which he didn't direct, but as I was watching that movie, uh, there's scenes where they're interviewing David Crosby and you can hear the interviewer. Yeah, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Cameron Crowe doing the interviewing. So I'm not sure how those credits were divided up and why he's not the director, but I think he was pretty heavily involved in that. And he certainly knows about classic rock. Yeah. I feel like he could just make classic rock documentaries for the rest of his yeah, career. Yeah, but we don't want that. I mean, no. He, he was a producer on that documentary. <sighs> who knows? I mean, he is notorious for taking his time uh, writing screenplays and developing his movies. So maybe maybe he's got another rabbit's foot in there that he's going to pull out. Yeah, maybe. I, I I would be happy to see it if it was announced. I mean, I was eager to see Aloha. And even the, the, through all the terrible press that it got leading up to it, I went into that movie thinking, OK, I'm going to hope to like this. And it didn't work. Yeah. I didn't see it. Yeah, and then you you don't need to see it. In a way, like I want to be a Cameron Crow completist, but in a way I don't because I haven't seen Aloha or Elizabethtown, and I'm like I can still hold them up here in this regard. And I feel like with Elizabethtown, I almost want to see that more because it was such a, a reviled film. But Aloha just is like, dude, you're just you're just gotta call it a day you jump the shark yeah aloha is way worse i think from my memories elizabethtown has it's a very poorly structured movie and it's very long and it has a whole like sort of extra plot that comes at like the two hour mark or something where it's like a road trip thing and i I, it's been a long time since i saw it but i remember watching the movie thinking this should have been the movie and so there's parts of it that are really good uh but yeah overall aloha i think has some sort of uh nuclear bomb storyline towards the end of it something like that it's asian emma stone well and that too and like you can within the context of them of the movie you can almost see why he thought that that was a good idea but the whole like i mean it's not a bomber it's like a missile is going to be launched and bradley cooper has to stop it or something like that watching the movie you're just like what was anyone thinking making this movie yeah uh i'm trying to think of like any director because was Vanilla Sky? It must have been a hit. It had it had Tom Cruise. Yeah, and, I think it did all right. You know, Cameron and uh, Cameron Diaz. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but man, like, who's who's had that like ascent and then that great fall with like, you know, four really good movies and then it just keeps going down without one coming back up. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about Rob Reiner when we talked about North, and he had a longer run yeah. and then kind of fell off with North and had one more big one, but you know, and then just went on this long, slow decline over the course of like six or seven movies. I'm this sure there's others. Very depressing episode for yeah. me. 
<laughs> well, let's talk about someone else. As a, as a reanimator, I need to reanimate his career. I, seems, I, so. I wish you could. Uh, we can talk about another person from this movie who also has sadly fallen off, which is John Cusack, who, as oh. you said, is just... And you look at his filmography, the last, like, 10, 15 movies he's made are just all these obscure direct-to-video thrillers. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, and, you know, he's one of the Nicolas Cage types that you hear rumors that he's a little wackadoo-doo, right. you know? A little loco in la cabeza. Uh-huh. Crazy. Ah, is that what that means? <laughs> but, uh, man, his so many iconic roles. And, yeah. I, and I, I know I've said that word a few times, but really, he's had iconic roles, man. Yeah, so. and this was interesting. I initially was thinking the legacy of this was like, oh, this is John Cusack, and now he's a romantic lead. But really... He already he, was. Yeah, he did all those teen movies. This was like the last teen movie he did. And this was kind of a transition period for him into doing more serious adult stuff, where this movie has a lot of comedy, but maybe he got to be a little more serious, show a bit more range, and then he went on to do more serious stuff later. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he was definitely one of the most notable stars of the 80s of mainstream film in the 80s i mean not just the 80s the 90s too yeah with high fidelity like you were saying and gross point blank those are great movies yeah and i love being john malkovich and being john malkovich yeah and mm-hmm. that's that's getting past the 90s i and think and gross point blank has and high fidelity two of the great film soundtracks of all time sure. yeah and it's sad i was trying to i think the last the last thing he did that was really acclaimed and worthwhile was the Brian Wilson biopic. Yeah, he was um, good in that. And he was good in that. But I think maybe like Nicolas Cage, he just accepts roles in these crappy low budget movies because he needs the money or he wants to work or I don't know what the reason is. Yeah. What is this series Utopia that he's doing? It's an upcoming. Uh, it looks interesting. I think it's an Amazon uh, Amazon Prime series. Is based on a British show. It was developed at HBO a few years ago. It was supposed to be a David Fincher project and he left it. And it got moved to Amazon. But that does seem like the kind of thing that could work out. I think Cusack has a smaller supporting role in it, from what yeah. I can tell. But that's probably what he should do. He should take a solid supporting role in like a serious TV series. Yeah, so maybe this will redeem him a bit. I think the last, uh, I mean, yeah. And he's done some good uh, serious stuff. Thin Red Line, you know, yeah. Terrence Malick. But the last thing we probably all remember as like a big uh, role for him was hot tub time machine. I think. <laughs> well, I think that Brian Wilson movie, I mean, he got, I think he probably got some award nominations for that. And I mean, not an Oscar, but he was in the conversation there. That was a little more recently than hot tub time machine and a little more serious. Okay. <laughs> I love hot tub time machine. How about the player? You know, that's yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's like, Almost that was ninety two. I know. I think. I'm just going. It's like I, he's eight done, men out. Yeah, he's know? done a lot of great stuff. I just think it's been a long time, and he's. It not only has it been a long time, but he is very prolific. And so, in between, like these slight moments of of quality, is just like this flood of crap. I think you're right, and I also think that it's the ones that do um, make it make it so big in the pop cultural. Uh, conversation that that's what you think of and you forget like oh he made four shitty movies right before this right right and hey at least that shows that he can he can rise to the occasion when he's given the chance to still um and ioni sky has sort of had working actress yeah but but really this was like the height of her career yeah but she's worked pretty consistently all the way through she Lastly, she was on Camping, I think was the last Yeah, thing the Jennifer Garner HBO series, which I never saw. I never watched it either. But um, but I feel like she's always been working and there hasn't been like, a, oh, 
Ione Skye's doing something for the first time in 17 years. No, no, but it's a bit, I mean, she's, I guess she doesn't work as much as John Cusack does. Um, And I think she might've even said that she didn't capitalize on this, the success of this film as much as she could have, but maybe she didn't feel the need to, you know, some people, maybe she didn't want to become a huge movie star and that's respectable. Yeah. I, I also, I mean, I think she's fine in this. She played Anvil's mother in, in uh, Arrested Development. Yeah, yeah. the last. Uh, no, I thought she was fine in this, but I mean, this is John Cusack's movie, I'd say. I mean, fair, I suppose. I mean, he it's his movie in that it launched his further stardom. But again, I think as a movie, as a story, it's equally both of their stories. Right. I just think he's the one who pops off the screen a little more. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I, I liked her performance. I mean... Not that Jennifer Connelly or Elizabeth Shue wouldn't have done good work here, but I wasn't ever feeling like someone else would have been better or would have been preferable in that. No, role. no, no. She's she's fine, and I, like I said, like working actress. If you look at her credits, she's yeah. working all the way through. You know, yeah, pretty much every year she's done something. So she's done something, right? But nothing that really is notable. Hey, paying the bills is notable. Josh. I'm sure it is. That and is that's very what she's true. Doing. She is indeed. So uh, any other thoughts on uh, on the legacy here? No, I think um, this one holds up, like we said, as it is. And uh, but at the same time, you couldn't do it right now. Couldn't make this movie again. Uh, I suppose. I mean, there's aspects of Lloyd's character that are a little seen could come off as a little stalkery, but I think they handle it well. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's. I just meant because boombox are out of fashion. Well, that's no, fair. Yeah, you could. Although it would be like a cool retro thing now. He would go to like yeah. a, a thrift store and buy a boombox, yeah. and she'd be like, "What is that?" Everyone would look exactly the same. You could say that at least. <laughs> that is that is probably true. No. Yeah, the fashion has has come back around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's a good movie. Check it out if you haven't. I mean, it's a very well known movie. But if you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. See the movie, guys. See it just like Dave did. For this podcast. If Dave can do it, you can. Yes. So, so true. Which, weirdly enough, was Diane Court's uh, that was campaign her. motto. <laughs> when she ran for state senate? Yeah. <laughs> so that's Say Anything, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. And why wouldn't you? There's so, it's, there's so much good stuff we're doing on social media. <laughs> Huh, we are on awesomemovieyear.com and awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram and awesome movie pod on Twitter. I'm at goforjason.com and also Jason Harris Comedy um, and Jay Harris Comedy as well on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm not on TikTok. No, neither am I. No. Maybe Cameron Crowe is. Maybe Kirk Cameron is. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not either of them. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, on Twitter at SignalBleed, and on Facebook at Josh Bell Hates Everything. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this podcast, and also follow us on social media at PiecingPod, and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. What do we have on our next episode, Jason? Hey, we're talking about first-time directors, man. The next one is a first-time director who has skyrocketed to the heights of probably one of the greatest filmmakers of the last 30 years, Steven Soderbergh and Sex, Lies, and Videotape, the Palme d'Or winner of uh, the Cannes Film Festival in 1989 and 
a movie that changed independent film forever, and I'm not overstating it. So tune in for some more uh, life-changing, industry-changing stuff. And just for the record, we could not have made that this episode because there is no Kevin Smith connection as a first-time filmmaker. (laughs) Such a good point. Check out Sex, Lies, and Videotape on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.